A lot of times you just have to fake it. When it comes to courage, your true feelings don't always matter. And if you're faking it and you're charging forward and doing what needs to be done, who cares? You just got to take care of business and you got to take care of yourself. According to a recent survey, only 19% of managing partners in U.S. law firms are female. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to Law Her, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is Law Her. Human and animal rights champion, activist, three-time author, television host, attorney, Lisa Bloom, owner of The Bloom Firm, is synonymous with high-profile cases that expose men in power for sexual misconduct. She has represented women in the Cosby, O'Reilly, and Epstein cases, to name a few. The Bloom Firm has fought for and won tens of millions of dollars for victims of discrimination, harassment, and abuse. Today, we discuss leveraging social media for justice, how to reset when emotionally drained, and the problem with celebrity worship as it relates to justice. Immersed in the fight for justice her entire life, Lisa shares with us the first protest she organized when she was only in the sixth grade. Let's dive in. So I was at Robert Louis Stevenson Elementary School. This was back in the Pleistocene era when I was a child. And there was a faculty student softball game except that it was only for boys. And even though it said student, you know, girls were half the population, but I guess we just didn't count in some way. So I thought that was wrong. I thought the girls should get to play, even though I was not a good baseball player at all, but I had friends who were. So I talked to my mom, Gloria Allred, and said, you know, what should we do here? And she said, you should organize. That's what we did. So we got the girls all together. We made homemade picket signs and said, this is sexist. And we won. And we Yay. won. And the school, yeah. Amazing. And the school decided to let girls play that year. And some of my girlfriends got to play. And I got an early lesson in, wow, like you can organize, you can agitate for change and you can win. Like that was amazing at 11 years old. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> For so many young girls, their mother is their hero and an exemplar of who they can be. Your mother, Gloria Allred, is amazing. And congratulations to her recent victory in the Bill Cosby case. So. Yes, there's no doubt about it. My mom has always been a fierce fighter for women and other oppressed groups. And just yesterday at age 80, she chalked up her latest trial victory on behalf of a woman named Judy Huff who sued Bill Cosby for sexually assaulting her when Judy was 16 years old back in the 1970s. And it was a very hard fought case. And my mom and her team, John West and Nathan Goldberg, won the case and just, yay, bravo for them. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Yes. Huge congratulations to her. Yes. So was there a specific moment then growing up where you knew just like in your bones that bringing about positive change was going to drive your life? 
Yeah, I think I always kind of knew that. I always felt very strongly. And again, my mom was a big influence on me because this is what we talk about at the dinner table, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, right to choose, uh, racial equality. So I always knew that it was my job to contribute and to make a difference, although I was resistant to going to law school. So when I was in college, I volunteered at a battered women's shelter. I worked with the abused children. I also volunteered in a homeless shelter, feeding homeless people. And I did that in law school as well. And I really thought about becoming a therapist or a social worker and helping people that way. But my mom convinced me to go to law school. Off I went and, you know, the rest is history. (laughs) You turned down a very lucrative kind of legal career to join and fight representing the powerless at your mother's firm in California. And to do this type of work, one must be bold, creative, and willing to fight. How do you recover when you get exhausted and it's just a constant battle? Do you get exhausted? I do. I get, I'd say, emotionally exhausted. I don't get so much physically exhausted, but it's very stressful. It's very hard. And you're right that, you know, the people on my side who represent the underdogs, we don't make as much money as the people on the other side. And it's funny, people, one of the comments I just saw on social media where I posted about my mom's victory and somebody said, well, the lawyers are probably going to take all the money in the (laughs) Cosby. And I was like, you know, (laughs) that's so wrongheaded. First of all, lawyers on both sides should get paid for their work. Everybody should get paid for their work. And the way that the ones on my side get paid is we take a contingency. We take a percentage only when we win. And if we lose, we get nothing. So it's a it's a big risk financially. That's a scary thing to a lot of lawyers, which I think is why a lot of lawyers don't do the work that I do. But to go back to your question, I it's very important to me to live a balanced life. So fight really hard for my clients and then I need a break. And it's always something very physical and very outdoorsy person. I am hiking the Pacific Crest 2,600 mile trail that goes from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada. I'm doing it in segments. I just did a segment last weekend. So I've done about 500 miles of it. So I go solo backpacking and strap everything on my back and off I go about 20 miles a day. And it's a great physical and mental challenge and break. I go at my own speed. I stop when I want. I camp where I want. I meet other hikers. Nobody knows who I am or what I do, nor do they care. (laughs) And we just have like these great real conversations on the trail. And that to me is a mental reset. And what's great about it is I can just go do it really almost whenever I want. I really love that because we talk about rest and rest is really important, but I like that you seek just a different type of challenge. You know, like there's this mental challenge and this tough fight and you go do something that is physically challenging and then also mentally challenging, but in a different way. I think that's a a great way to balance. Thank you. And, you know, I've never been the kind of person who wants to go on vacation and like sit on a beach chair and and stare at the ocean and like drink alcohol. That's never (laughs) been my thing. It's fun. Is it? I, yeah. <laughs> I find it intensely boring. You know, I can sit there for about, you know, a short time and read if I have something interesting to read. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the one of the biggest challenges to me of practicing law is that most of it is inside and I have to sit and I have to be at a computer screen. And that's not really my jam. I really like to be up on my feet. I like to be talking. I like, you know, if we could move the courts outside, if I could meet with my clients outside and we could be walking, uh, I would like it a lot better. I'm just a very outdoorsy person who likes to move. 
So when I'm practicing law, you know, which is most of the time I can work out for an hour or two in the morning and then I'm kind of sitting the rest of the day. When I'm hiking on the trail, it's flipped and I'm really just walking all day and maybe it's just an hour or two of resting. That really works better for me. Yeah. You, you should start the client meetings in the forest. <laughs> just take a desk out okay. there. Okay. I'll do any, any clients who want me to represent <laughs> them and we will meet in the forest. Uh, you are in. <laughs> to fight the way that you fight requires unbridled courage. Was courage a learned behavior for you? It does take a lot of courage. And I tell my clients who really are, are more courageous than I, because it's personal for them. You know, I signed up for this. I always remember that. They did not. Things happened to them. And then they decided I have to stand up, even though I really don't want to, even though I'd rather be a model or a secretary or a security guard. Or I mean, these are the kinds of people I represent. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be a, like a civil rights activist. So for courage, you know, I, I think a lot of times you just have to fake it. And if you're faking it and you're charging forward and doing what needs to be done, who cares whether you really feel courageous or not? You just got to take care of business and you got to take care of yourself. I have people coming after me all the time, threatening me, suing me, threatening to sue me. And like, I just have to keep going because I believe in what I do. I think you're right. I think sometimes when we don't have something that we want, you just fake it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you pretend you go through the motions, sometimes suddenly it's like, oh, okay, maybe I do have courage. <laughs> right. I mean, people who are brave still feel fear. You know, we're still human beings. We're not robots. And the other way I think I would say I deal with like being nervous is just to over-prepare. And I, I think a lot of people say this, but I mean, when I go in to argue a case, I need to know that case better than anybody, better than my associates, better than opposing counsel, certainly better than the judge. I want to know it backwards and forwards. I do have the ability to read a lot of material and thousands and thousands of pages and make a lot of notes and retain what's important. And really knowing the case backwards and forwards makes me feel braver. Yeah. Again, excellent advice. Being prepared allows you to kind of anticipate what's coming, you know? I'm always amazed that attorneys are not prepared. I'm amazed when they come in and they don't know the facts and they don't know the law and they didn't talk to their client and they're just kind of winging it. I'm shocked when I see that. And I see that a lot. Yeah, that would make me really anxious to walk into a courtroom <laughs> and not know what's going on. So I, I couldn't be that kind of attorney. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Disgusted by the legal system when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Bowers versus Hardwick that states could criminalize consensual gay sex, you almost gave up law. Why did you decide to stay? Yeah, so that was in the 1980s and I was in law school. I've been a big believer in gay rights since high school. I did a speech on it and went to the speech finals in my state on that. And so now I'm in law school and I spent a summer working at Lambda Legal Defense, which was an LGBT rights organization, worked on wow. that case. At that time, it was legal for states to criminalize consensual adult gay sex which is just shocking. And half the states did. And so Bowers versus Hardwick was a challenge to that law. Two men who had been arrested for having sex in their own home, police officer peeking in the window through the curtains and arrested them. And it was a felony. And I've worked in that case as a little baby intern. I mean, I had a tiny, tiny role. 
And when that decision came down, it was right this summer after I graduated law school and was studying for the bar. And the Supreme Court said, yes, states can criminalize consensual adult gay sex. I thought, that's it. I can't be part of this system. I'm not doing this. This is disgusting. It's a Supreme Court decision. How long is this going to be law? And you know, I sat down in the streets in New York and protested, and it was uh, it was very dramatic. And um, you know, ultimately, I decided, I you know, I'm going to take the bar and I'm going to fight for civil rights for gay people and for everybody else. And and that's what I did. But you know, I I still feel it thinking about mm-hmm. it now. Yeah. I still feel it disgusting. And of course, in 2003 the Supreme Court reversed that case, thank God, which is actually pretty fast in terms of the Supreme Court reversing itself. But, you know, how many LGBT people had to live in fear and how many were arrested a lot? It was a shameful time for our country. Yes. Well, I am very glad that you persevered and decided to move forward with a legal career. Thank you. You also train teens to fight for victims. At your own firm, you train your team on how to fight for victims of discrimination, harassment, and abuse. Can you walk us through what you do at your firm and how it can be replicated at other firms? How can other firms kind of prepare their teams? I have a team of about nine attorneys and a half a dozen uh, paralegals and other staffers, and we fight these cases every day and we do well. And I think that's because we know what we're doing. So you have to have compassion for the clients and you have to fight hard with the other side and you have to work up every case as though you're going to trial right from the beginning. So compassion for the clients, you know, our clients are traumatized people. Many of them are sexually abused or uh, we represent Black Lives Matter protesters who were assaulted by police. And, you know, these are people who are traumatized and they're not going to tell us everything in the first meeting. They're not going to trust us in the first meeting, even though they reach out to me because they have some faith in me. It just takes time for that to develop. And so we have to talk to them, not just once or twice, but over and over again. Eventually, I think we do gain their trust. You know, no case is perfect. Clients have things to tell us that may be a problem. We always tell them there's no fact that's worse than a lie. So in a deposition, you just can't lie. If there's a bad fact, tell us, let's talk about it in advance. We'll get it out. We'll handle it. It's fine. You just can't cover it up or lie. So that's kind of a summary about the compassion for clients fighting hard to the other side. I mean, we are in several big cases right now. And we, you know, we represent plaintiffs, which means we have to be aggressive. We have to go, go, go. We have the burden of proof. We have to push, push, push. The other side is always going to delay. Oh, you know, I stubbed my toe today. I need a six month continuance. And and it's our job to nudge and to fight and to push. Luckily, that's kind of my personality anyway. (laughs) So that's easy for me. Let's go, let's go. But, you know, this isn't about being nice or making friends with opposing counsel. It's about fighting hard for our clients. We want every piece of discovery we're entitled to, and we're going to push and push until we get it. So that's just, that's just some of it. You know, we have to know the law. We have a lot of weekly meetings, all staff meetings, by Zoom, and we do constant updates on the law and the developments in the law, developments in psychology, especially around sexual assault, so that we're all really super familiar with what we do. You mentioned you're often dealing with people who have had very traumatic experiences, and you have been very vulnerable in sharing your own lived traumatic experiences and allowing space for true empathy in the process. Can you share how that has a fundamental way to heal? 
Well, um, I, you know, I, yeah, I was sexually abused many years ago when I was a child for four years by my stepfather and I didn't report it for many, many years for about 10 years. And I understand that this is one of the biggest problems for sexual abuse victims is they take a long time to report it. And the defense in every case will always say, well, she didn't report it right away, so she must be lying. She didn't immediately run to the police at 11 years old or when her boss was assaulting her, and therefore she must be lying. And so, you know, every time we have to explain, we have to have experts, we have to bring in the research, that that's just not the way it works. I mean, in terms of my own healing, I would say that I started doing sexual abuse cases in my late 20s. And it was just honestly too soon. Mm -hmm. I did the cases, but it was just too hard on me emotionally. I ended up doing a different kind of work and came back to it. You know, now I'm 60 years old. One of the things I always want women to know is that we get stronger as we get older. I promise you, you are going to get stronger when you get older. 20s are a hard time. There's a lot of anxiety. You don't know what's going to happen in your life. You're nervous about everything. You really settle down. <laughs> and you do much better 30s, 40s, 50s, not just me talking about my own experience, although that is my experience. It's there's a lot of data on this. And so like I have a friend who just turned 29 and she's like, oh, I'm so old. I'm like, oh, please, you're going to love your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You have so much to look forward to. So, you know, I mean, I think it's a journey for all of us. We all have to figure out how to get where we need to be, how to be centered, we have to check our own emotional, you know, am I having a hard day? What do I need to be better? But I'm here at age 60 to tell everybody uh, it definitely gets better and uh, you have a lot to look forward to. Yes, I love that. And it does definitely get better. I think that needs said more often because again, my own experience when it has always just gotten better, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go back to my 20s. No, I don't want to go back to high school. <laughs> Right. Oh, high school. Forget it. Ugh, gross. Right. <laughs> God, what a, what a weird world that is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it does require a significant amount of vulnerability, especially in leaders that are supposed to appear strong and tough and that they know what they're doing. Is there something leaders can do to share their stories appropriately with their teams? I think it's a very personal decision. If you want to share your personal story, I haven't gone into any detail with my team about my story. I don't think it's really all that relevant. And even with clients, I don't really want to talk about me, me, me. I want to talk about them. But I will sometimes say, I know, I get it. I've been there and it's going to get better. And, you know, for example, if they have a therapist they don't like, I'm like, switch therapists. You know, there's a lot of them out there. And I mean, other than that, I think, you know, I've seen some attorneys really get personal with clients and really go deep into their own stories. And I feel like that probably isn't the best practice. It, it's maybe a little bit oversharing, but I, don't, I guess it's a personal decision that everybody has to make. Yeah, I, I, I think that is good advice, though, is, is when you're sharing stuff like that, that you don't have to be detailed. You can share as much or as little that would assist. In a recent article from The Guardian, the author says Lisa handles publicity the way a samurai wields a sword. I wanted our listeners to learn from the master. However, not every lawyer will be on national television. Through the accessibility of platforms like Instagram and YouTube, your voice can still be heard. 
Hear Lisa on how lawyers can use social media to their advantage. So I really like social media. It's where the action is right now, right? And there's a lot of hate on there too, but I mean, just block and ignore those people and get your message out of what you want to say. So for lawyers, I think if you start posting and especially post videos, that's what people want to see about your practice area and what you do and things you care about within your practice area. I mean, show a little passion. Most people are intimidated by lawyers. They're afraid to call you. And they also, they want to see that you're authoritative and that you're passionate. Also, don't be long-winded because people get bored. (laughs) So I would say one minute videos, uh, that's what I shoot for and pick one topic and, you know, hit it and bring it home. If you don't know what to talk about, if there's something in your practice area that's in the news that you can talk about, it doesn't have to be your case. In fact, you have more freedom to talk under the ethical rules about cases that are not your case. If it's your own case, you're limited. And just get out there and and start posting. And, you know, some of the other attorneys in my firm who are young have started doing this and clients start contacting them. So, Uh, You know, it doesn't cost anything. And, uh, you know, if if you can't, you know, look into a camera and do a one minute video about your practice area, you might ask yourself uh, what the problem is, because you should be able to do that. In addition to social media, are there other platforms that lawyers can use to amplify their voices and those of the powerless that they represent? Well, you know, people do all kinds of things. So I had an attorney in my firm who was bilingual in English and Spanish, and he would do know your rights uh, seminars for Spanish speaking workers that were free after work hours. And a lot of Spanish speaking workers would come and he would break down what their rights were as employees in California. And he got a lot of clients that way. So, you know, don't underestimate in-person meetings. They're still out there. They're still happening. People want to meet you, bring a big stack of business cards, hand them out to people. Those are still a good way of doing things. If you can be a speaker at any kind of event, and talk about your work and what you do and why you care about helping people. And then hang around afterwards. Don't make a beeline out of there. Talk to people, hand out cards. You know, eventually you're going to build up a, a good practice. I love that. Sort of a both digital social media, but then more traditional networking. Yes. <laughs> Get out there, meet people. <laughs> Tell everybody, you know, listen, my mom, Gloria Allred, when she started practicing law 40 something years ago, right out of law school, she started a firm with two partners. They had no clients. Nobody had ever heard of them. She, we would be at a gas station literally. And she would say to the gas station attendant, Hi, I'm an attorney. Here's my card. She would say to the waitress in a restaurant, oh, thank you. You've taken good care of us. By the way, if you ever need me, here I am. Here's my card. And I was a teenager. I was very embarrassed. Oh, mom, why are you doing that? And now I see, you know what? She was building up a business and good for her. And look at her today. She's you know, one of the best known attorneys, I think, in the world. Absolutely. Uh, It's largely how my dad operated. He had his own insurance agency and wherever we went, hey, you need some insurance. So it's very effective. (laughs) And, you know, people see you and they see that you care and this is your work and you're proud of it. And they may not know an insurance agent or they may not know an attorney. So they hold onto that card and it can generate business. Yes. Very, very, very good. I'd like to touch on your books. In both Think and Swagger, you outline toxic culture for both girls and boys. I'm curious, what changes have you seen since writing the books? Have they been for the better or the worse? So thank you. So think was largely about the celebrity culture that we live in. I wrote Mm -hmm. it about 
11 years ago, I think, and how it's kind of taken over everything. If anything, it's, I think it's only gotten worse in the last decade. And the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case is a good example of that, of this sort of celebrification of that case. And Johnny Depp being such an A-list celebrity with so many obsessed fans who you know, had literally billions of hashtag justice for Johnny Depp posts and how they went after everybody. And they lined the streets and Amber Heard said, you know, when she was driving into court that people with signs, you know, death to Amber Heard and just vile, vulgar, disgusting comments about her. And so this, you know, celebrity worship in our culture has really escalated. And I think that's a problem and we all have to push back against it. And Swagger, I talked about boys, as you say, and how to raise boys notwithstanding all the pressures that are on boys. I still see mm-hmm. that a, a great deal too, that boys are raised to, you know, be violent and tough and not have emotions and, and schoolwork doesn't matter. And so, you know, girls are outperforming boys at every level in school and college and even graduate and medical and law schools, you know, and that's great on the one hand because girls are smart and working hard, but on the other hand, a lot of boys are getting left behind. Yeah. So I, I think those problems uh, really are, are still very much with us. You've used your platform to outline the injustice that was done in the Zimmerman trial and the murder of Trayvon Martin in a book entitled Suspicion Nation, the inside story of the Trayvon Martin injustice and why we continue to repeat it. You stated that the trial was unjust and racist and were disturbed that so few non-Black people read the book or even seemed to care about racism. How can attorneys fight against a racially biased system when it feels like they're on their own? I think we have seen a little bit of improvement with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, really uh, becoming so giant in 2020 and millions of people in the streets. And we did see more white people particularly getting involved. And that was heartening to me. We're now seeing, I think, a backlash. And there's a lot of right wing backlash to Black Lives Matter and trying to paint the whole movement like it was violent. And, you know, it's all about little microaggressions. And and that's really not what it's about. Uh, It's about very fundamental problems in our system. So how can attorneys do more? I mean, first of all, educate yourself about these issues. I think as a white person, you may have certain assumptions and, you know, don't assume that your life experience is the same as everybody else's. I mean, I've literally heard white people say like, well, you know, I never experienced racism. I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of great books to read. You can read mine, but there's a lot of wonderful other books to read, YouTube videos, documentaries, and really educate yourself and then consider what you can do in your practice. Can you take on a pro bono case, for example? I just took on a case uh, yesterday of uh, an African-American man called the N-word a couple of times in his workplace. We see a lot of that. This is a case that, you know, it's probably not a particularly high value case, but it's I think it's important. And we wanted to stand up for him and fight for him. And if it ends up being a pro bono case, you know, so be it. And there's a lot of need out there. And I think once you educate yourself and you open yourself up to doing the work and helping people, you're going to be rewarded. I will say that the African-American community has always been so amazing and generous and appreciative to me, like way beyond anything I deserve. And they just uh, embrace me. They're like, thank you for doing this case. Whenever I do a race discrimination case, they just want a little help. So let's give it, let's, let's use our, use, use our talents and let's do it. Yes, absolutely. Are there, are there any organizations that attorneys or people in general can turn to for support? 
There's the NAACP, the Inc. Fund, as it's called, which is the legal end of it. Uh, there's the Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's probably many, many organizations. Um, so I, I don't think it would be hard for people to find them. And is there anyone that comes to mind that you see doing really great work in this space? Well, my firm does a lot of race discrimination yes, cases. I'm around too darn horn, but we do a lot and we've been pretty successful at it. You know, my mom's firm obviously does race discrimination cases. I mean, I think there's there's a number of firms that that do them. If you could give one piece of advice that you could impart on young lawyers, what would it be? Know the case better than your opponent. Handle your emotional health. Make it a priority. I think probably the number one reason a lot of attorneys leave the profession is it's too stressful. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they have to just work around the clock. They absorb all of the stress and they don't know what to do with it. And then they give up. You know, I'm always hiring senior litigators for my firm and they're hard to find. It's easy to find junior litigators, people who are like one to five years out of law school, Mm -hmm. but 10, 15, 20 years out, a lot of people, especially women leave the profession. So you got to handle that. I think it's really important. You got to figure out how you can manage the stress. Maybe you take on fewer cases. Maybe you take more vacations. Maybe you have an alternate thing you do that really makes you happy, whether it's cooking or hiking or running or whatever it is, but you have to manage the stress or you're not going to last. What are some bright points that you are optimistic about? I'm optimistic about people standing up for their rights and especially younger people. You know, I have younger clients like in their twenties who come to me and they just immediately like, what, you know, I was sexually harassed. This is ridiculous. I'm calling a lawyer. I'm standing up for myself. A lot of the shame and self blame and stuff is not there because Mm -hmm. they've grown up in a culture where like, this is just not acceptable. Right. So, I mean, that, that definitely gives me hope. Mm -hmm. What is next for you and your firm? Gosh, I mean, we always have so much going on. You know, one of the cases that we have been working on very hard is against the company Guess and Paul Marciano, who has been accused by many women of sexual misconduct. And we now represent two women in litigation. Unfortunately, they were forced into arbitration because of an agreement they signed for modeling. But, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the streets. We'll fight them. What was the famous Winston Churchill quote? We will fight them wherever we have to. And in this case, it's arbitration. We may be going to trial in the first one, August 1st, which is only in about five weeks. We are ready. We would like it to go to trial then. If it gets continued, so be it. Then it gets continued as the other side, of course, wants and we don't then we'll we'll continue to fight it. That's an important one that we're working very hard on. I I mentioned our Black Lives Matter cases. I think we have a trial date next spring. In one of them, our clients were unarmed. They were shot by police rubber bullets at protests over police brutality, which kind of proved the point of the protests. And uh, those cases are really important. I love representing activists because they are also very clear on what, Mm -hmm. what they want. There's no internalized shame to get over. Like they know why they were there and they're pretty outraged about what happened. So we have eight women we represent against the company Activision, which has a big sexual harassment scandal that it's been embroiled in. And um, one of those is already uh, starting depositions today and very proud of those clients. And this company needs to shape up. They've had a lot of investigations from government agencies, and they still, in my opinion, are not treating the women the way that they should be. So we're going to make them make them do that. So that's just a little sampling. Just a little sampling. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. All right. One more for you. In think one of the solutions that you have for learning how to think again is to read constantly and read the good stuff. What is the good stuff? <laughs> so you can read a trashy novel every now and then, but you should be reading things that are smart, that make you enlightened, make you a better person. If I think about the last thing I read, it's David Sedaris's new book. If you know him, he's, he's a humor writer. I wouldn't say he's particularly like making me a more enriched, enlightened person, but he did make me laugh out loud when I was listening to the audio book, when I was hiking 20 miles a day. <laughs> and that's something else, you know, it's a big planet. There's a lot going on and we need to be aware. And I, I called my book Think because I really want to encourage women, especially to think. We have so many cultural messages that what we look like is so important and our hair and our makeup and our clothes and our, you know, whatever. And it's obviously none of that really is important. And what's important is in our what's in our brains and how we're using them. So I like to read things on both sides. I like to listen to, I listen to some right-wing podcasts because Number one, I want to know what's on the other side. Number two, I like, I'm a big girl. I can take it. Even if I don't agree with most of it, you know what? Sometimes they do make a good point. And I think, oh, okay. Okay. I, I hear that. I get it. You know, I think we have to always be challenging ourselves, not just live in our bubble, not just hear what we want to hear. So that's what I encourage people to do, whether you're reading, you're listening, you're watching. Completely agree. I think thinking, but also critical thinking, being able to listen to something and say, I agree with that. I don't agree with that <laughs> is very important. So I try to do the same. I will read and listen to things that I know I will not agree with. <laughs> Good for you. Yes. Exactly. Any books that have made a really big impact on you over the last few years? Well, it was more than a few years ago that I read it, but it just popped into my head, Half the Sky, which is a wonderful book about women in the third world and the struggles that they face. Lately, I've been reading a lot of books about climate change. Bill Gates's book was very good about climate change. And I think climate change is so important and we can't turn away from it. I'm actually reading a book now about the psychology of why we can't grasp it, why we are turning away from it. It's called Don't Even Think About It. <laughs> and from a psychologist, like we all, most of us who understand the science understand this is really bad. It's an existential threat. And yet, like, are we spending all of our time fighting it? No. Am I? No. I, I spend some time on this and then I turn to other things. It's just the way the human mind works. And even when I'm out hiking and I can see the changes in our environment, I can see that this, the streams and the creeks are drying up. I can see that the bird diversity is very different than it was even two years ago. We turn away from it. So those are some of the things that are on my mind right now. Courage may not come naturally, but as Lisa says, fake it. Charge forward, take care of business and yourself. To fight tirelessly for the powerless year over year, you have to care for yourself first and most. Find time to reset emotionally and physically. For Lisa, that means hiking in the wilderness. For you, that could be a walk in the park or 20 minutes in the sun. Get outside and take a breath, then get back to it. A huge, huge thank you to Lisa Bloom for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You have been listening to Lawher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or just made you smile, please share this episode with the trailblazers in your life. For more about Lisa, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I will see you next week on Lawher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. Music